Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current study of the book of Hebrews. When you read through the book of Hebrews, you will see time and time again that Jesus is greater than everyone and everything that ever was, is, or will be. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here in the house. Good to see those of you online. We're glad you're here as we dig into this series on the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm going to go a little bit back in time, uh, really far back in time for us, back to uh, 150 AD. Uh, during that time in the history of the world, in the, in, in the known world that time uh, around uh, the Middle East, which would include uh, Israel and Greece and those areas, there was a bishop uh, named uh, Polycarp. And fierce anti-Christian persecution had erupted in the area of Asia Minor. And uh, one of the most famous examples of trials occurred in the city of Smyrna in 156 AD. It seems that the, the folks in the city demanded that Christian leaders swear obedience to the emperor, to Caesar. And they demanded that they do that by burning incense before his statue and by affirming that Caesar is Lord. Now, as I mentioned, Polycarp was a bishop. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And his persistent devotion to Christ for decades had made him a very visible local figure. So when this mob looked for Christians that they wanted to humiliate, they zeroed in on Polycarp. A police squad went to get this aged Christian bishop, and the captain, probably wanting to spare Polycarp from the coming hardship, said, what harm is there, Polycarp, if you just say that Caesar is Lord? Swear loyalty to Caesar and save yourself. Polycarp refused the captain's request, and so he had to bring him in. He brought him to the city's arena, and there the proconsul from Asia renewed the plea and said to him, Consider your age. Swear by the divinity of Caesar. Just say away with these atheists. Now, think this through. You know, Polycarp knew that the true atheists were those who denied the deity of Christ, not those who refused to acknowledge the divinity of Caesar. So he waved his hand toward the pagan crowd and exclaimed, away with the atheists. The proconsul still insisted. He said, Take the oath of loyalty to Caesar, and I will let you go. Revile Christ. And so we have this confession that Polycarp made. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my Savior and my King? Further argument with Polycarp proved useless, and they sent him to be burned at the stake. Now, Polycarp's martyrdom did two things in that part of Asia Minor. It, it produced a temporary revulsion against martyrdom among the pagan population. You, you see, the pagan crowd had no more stomach for burning old men at the stake. And it also gave Christians a high level of credibility before their pagan neighbors. If Christianity could produce people like Polycarp, then even pagan people were interested in their source 
have a conviction for their commitment to Christ. Today, we're going to dive into chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews, which is a chapter about the kind of faith that Polycarp had. But before we do so, I just want to look at one verse in chapter 10. So after quoting the prophet Habakkuk about how righteous people live their lives, the author concludes with a thought that I imagine was something that Polycarp himself thought about. The author of Hebrews writes, but we are not like those who turn away from God in their, to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. I am certain that those scriptures and others like it came to mind to Polycarp as the flames rose up around him. Polycarp understood that faith wasn't just a, an intellectual assent, uh, pursuit, not just intellectual assent, but rather that it was a way of life to be lived in everything that he did. Faith is about us living our lives, trusting that God is who he says he is, and that his word actually gives us instruction about how to live everyday life. And recently I got some insight about being a follower of Jesus in the first century and I want to share it to you. Pastor Andy Stanley writes this. In the first century, Christians were viewed as threats to the state of Rome, not because of what they believed, but because of who they said was their king. Christians were viewed as threats to the state because of who they chose to obey. Rome had little interest in which God or gods people chose to worship. People were allowed their many gods, but only one king. Rome's mandate was unambiguous. Worship your Christ, obey Caesar. Separating sacred from secular was not an issue for idol-worshiping pagans, but for Christians, it was a non-starter. Jesus was a king who required his subjects to obey him. In the book of Acts, this is interesting to, when you realize it, the word Christian, which is found there, is exclusively used on the lips of the critics of the followers of Jesus. It was a slur. It was an insult. Imagine that. In the first century, no one asked Christians if they were Christian. They were accused of being it because it was evident in the way they lived their lives, because of how they behaved. Their behavior underscored their fidelity to King Jesus. You see, faith is not static. It's not a intellectual thought that we say we believe but doesn't impact the way we live. For those first century Christians, faith wasn't just a way to believe. It was a way to live. And that's the issue that the writer of Hebrews was confronting. And that's the issue that's relevant to us today in 2022. To believe in Jesus means more than just having faith. It means following and obeying Jesus and letting his words help us decide everything that comes into our lives every day. So when the writer of Hebrews writes these words, he talks about faith, and this is what he says. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for 
and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. You see, he's talking about people who had faith to both believe in and obey with the way they lived their life, the God that they said they believed in. They couldn't see God and they couldn't touch God, but they understood that God, what God had done and they read about him and they believed what they read and they obeyed what they knew he taught. And so as the author of Hebrews gets into chapter 11, he gives us three examples of how people lived their lives and these people would be people that maybe are not as familiar to us, but they would have been very familiar to his Hebraic audience. He points out three things about living our faith with the people that they would have recognized. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And these three and many others didn't just say they believed, they had a living faith. So, uh, the author of Hebrews points out three important things about a living faith. And the first one is this. He tells us that this living faith can be accessed through Christ. Now, if you're wondering, how does a person from the Old Testament tell us that faith is accessed through Jesus? Let's look at this. In verse 4, we read, By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So, so let me explain this. In the book of Genesis, we read the story of Cain and Abel, the two sons of Adam and Eve. Both brothers bring an offering to God. Now, since Cain worked in the soil, he brought some of the produce of his crops. And since Abel kept flocks, he brought a sacrifice of one of the firstborn of his sheep. Now, the scripture tells us that God accepts Abel's sacrifice, his offering, but not Cain's offering. But, but nowhere in that section in the book of Genesis do we find out why God accepted Abel's offering and not Cain's. And one scholar writes this, when we look at the story from the perspective of the book of Hebrews, a good case can be made that Abel's sacrifice was approved precisely because it included the shedding of blood. In the previous chapters of Hebrews, think about this, the author has made it clear that the followers of God cannot approach the throne of God unless they make a blood sacrifice. And the author even made a point that the first covenant was put into effect by the sacrificing of an animal. Dr. Michael Kruger points out this. It is possible then that Abel recognized this reality. And so when he made an offering to God, he brought an animal sacrifice. And of course, an animal's blood couldn't take away sins. But Abel's offering foreshadowed what Christ would do. Abel enjoyed God's favor because he put his faith in the sacrifice. You can't approach God in just any way, any way you want to. Cain tried that and it didn't work. You always have to approach God through the shed blood of the Savior. Now, the world divides into people who are Cain's and people who are Abel's. Those who approach God in their own way and those who approach God through Christ. Western society will tell you that each person gets to decide for themselves how to approach God, but 
God's word, the scriptures tell us otherwise. In a sense, we recognize that Abel's voice can still be heard today. And remember what the scripture said, even though he is dead, Abel still speaks. This means the lesson of Abel's life is still applicable today. Namely, that we must approach God by faith through a blood sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, living faith has to be accessed through Christ. That's the first thing that we see in, the, in chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews. The next thing we see is this, is that living faith is relational. So in the book of Genesis, we, we learn about Enoch. Uh, he lived a, a very long life, but here are two important things that we learn from him. He walked faithfully with God. Two times in Genesis 5, we read that he walked faithfully with his God, time and time again. So that tells us that Enoch and God had a close relationship. In fact, they were so close, Scripture tells us that God didn't let Enoch die. Instead, he took him to heaven before he died. Again, we read in the book of Hebrews these words, by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. So why did God do this for Enoch? Because he had a living faith. Look at, again at what Hebrews says. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So think this through. Uh, Enoch walked with God. That meant he had a relationship with God. A living faith is relational. It means that we can talk to God, that we can personally communicate with God. The Christian life is not simply knowing things about God, not just intellectual truths. It's a personal, daily relationship with God where we speak to God, where we trust God, where we let him speak to us through his word and through the power of his spirit. Now let's look at all of verse six in chapter 11. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So this tells us an important truth that the only way we can please God is by faith. But this is, is not a simple belief that we have in our head that just goes nowhere and does nothing. It's a belief that translates into a life of us Yes, believing, but then following and obeying God. Now, there is a part of that verse that, that tells us something that I want to make sure that we understand. It says that God rewards those who believe in him. Now, please understand, this is not saying that you are rewarded with salvation by the work of believing Believing is not a good deed that leads to salvation. Rather, it is through believing in Christ that we receive the one thing that saves. Christ is who saves. When we believe in him, we receive his salvation for us. So he is the object of our saving faith. So how did Abel and Enoch and everyone else mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 who believed but lived before Jesus on this earth, how did they get saved? How are they in heaven? 
Well, while they didn't know Jesus by name, they had put their trust in the Messiah that had always been prophesied to come. So think this through. While we look back in history to Jesus as our Messiah, they looked forward in history to the Messiah, the chosen one. They, they had been told about over and over and over. Walking with God, being close to God. Enoch learned that the Messiah, the chosen one, was coming. And he put his faith in what God was going to do with the Messiah. Faith is relational. Here's the third thing that we learn about a living faith. It's obedient. It's obedient. And Noah illustrates to us that faith requires obedience. Uh, when we read uh, this verse uh, from chapter, the beginning of the chapter, that faith is assurance about what we do not see. The story of Noah shows us what obeying God looks like. Because remember, God gave Noah a command that really must have made him think God was crazy. You know, he, he told Noah to build a boat, and, and in terms that we would understand, it would be over 500 feet long. That's almost as long as a football field. And it would be over 50 feet high, that's five stories, and it was supposed to be built in the middle of dry land. So, verse 7 says this, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So, Noah had faith. And he was obedient and did what God told him to do, even though it seemed crazy. Living faith means sometimes God is going to ask you to do things. Things that you never thought you would do. Things that make, might make you feel uncomfortable, pushed out of what is your normal daily routine. But God has to be trusted. We have to decide to obey God. And did you notice that it said that by his obedient faith, Noah condemned the world? Well, this means that he believed God and he didn't believe the hollow promises of the culture of his day. And since the rest of the world rejected God's warning, they were left only to their judgment. So, Noah obeyed God, and obviously God approved what he did, but his approval with God wasn't because of Noah's good work of building the ark. The last phrase says this, that Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. He believed God, and he lived out what he believed God was telling him to do. He was obedient. So like Abel and like Enoch, Noah's righteous standing before God was acquired, not on the basis of good works, but on trusting that God was going to do what he promised in a future Savior, a future Messiah. So living faith is obedient. Now, I, I wanted to explain those specific things about what living faith looks like, but there are many more examples of what living by faith looks like in, in chapter 11. And I'm not going to go through them all, but, but let me highlight a few. Out of obedience... 
living faith says that we will not fear humans. In other words, we won't fear humans, but we'll fear, respect God. And that comes out when we read in the 11th chapter of Hebrews about Moses' life. Uh, His family were slaves in Egypt. They were part of the Israelites that had been taken slaves by the Egyptians. And the king, the Pharaoh, gave a commandment that all male Hebrew babies must be drowned at birth. So when Moses was born, his parents didn't do that. They kept him. And we read this in verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Believing in God, believing that he's sent our Messiah means we will follow God and not fear people. Living faith also means that we will say no to the things of this world, specifically the sinful things of this world. And again, the example is the the life of Moses. So the author reminds us about Moses' living faith. So in verses 24 and 25, we read this. By faith, when Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So living faith will cost you because you will say no to the ways of the world. You will say no to sin and yes to God. But the author of Hebrews goes on. And he tells us that living faith will lead us to do some amazing mighty deeds because we have believed in and followed God and we've been obedient to God. But he also tells us that living faith will also cause us to suffer for Christ. And this is what he writes. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an, ever, an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes and in the ground. Now look, I know nobody wants to suffer. But here it is, in black and white, in God's word, that being obedient to God, having a living faith, living out what we say we will believe, what we believe will cause us to suffer for the cause of Christ. Just like Jesus suffered to save us. Now, there are people who will tell you that God wants you to always be happy and that God wants to make you healthy and wealthy and successful. And while the, the Bible does tell us that God wants us to prosper, it's not prosper as the world sees prosperity. It's to prosper by having a vital living faith with God through Jesus. So if you're truly following Jesus with a living faith, you will suffer for that because not everyone in this world accepts Christ and the world's value system doesn't reflect the values of Jesus. You will make choices that are about God's values and not about the value system of the world. 
You'll make choices that will go against the, the cultural direction. Why? Because you're putting God first and no other person and no other system. Putting God first will mean that you need to use what you've been blessed with on this earth to serve God and not yourself. Now, this is about the living faith. We also need to recognize that, that God calls us to, to live this faith out every day. And so as the writer of Hebrews brings chapter 11 to a close, he starts off in chapter 12 and he talks about this living faith and he uses the metaphor of, of running the race of faith. So let me read verses one through three of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That scripture tells us how to have a living faith, how to run the race of faith, to use the metaphor. So uh, I want you to look at three things from that section. First, find your fans. Find your fans. Now, you know, the power of encouragement is amazingly particular when you're running a race. When I was about 13 years old, I had a football coach who told me, if you want to get in shape, you need to start running. And, you know, I may be weird, but it stuck with me. At 27, I met a man in, uh, that was in the church that I pastored. Uh, his name was Marv, and he was running his ninth marathon. And, I, you know, uh, Marv was a foot shorter than me, and he probably weighed twice as much as I did. And I thought to myself, I said, wow, I'd really like to run a marathon. And if, if Marv can do it, I can do it. And, and so, you know, I, I went into training, and I, you know, he gave me a book, to How to Run Your First Marathon, and so I did all that training, and I still remember that marathon because it was in the, the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and it ends on the main drag in St. Paul as it heads down to the capital, and when we came up the hill from the river valley, there were all these people. And they were cheering, and, and it gave me shivers then. It's given me shivers now because, you know, I, they didn't know who I was, but I had a, a race bib on it. I had a number, and they would yell at my number, and they would, would keep going. And, and you know, this, this was 20-some miles into the race, and, and I was exhausted. But all of a sudden, all of that encouragement, all of that cheering for me brought in another gear, brought in some energy that I, I didn't know I had, and, and I found the strength to keep going. And, and it, was, it was exhilarating. It was electric. It was something that I still remember to this day. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 12, we read that we are to run the race of faith, and as we do so, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, who were these witnesses? There are all the people that you would read about in chapter 11. That's, there's Abel and there's Enoch and there's Noah and there's Abraham and there's Sarah. And, and then there's people that aren't even mentioned there because he's focusing on, you know, Hebrew Christians. 
but there would be for us today, the disciples and Mary and all of these other people that have followed Jesus over the centuries. So spiritually speaking, he's saying, listen, we're surrounded by the witness of these other believers who have lived their faith. Now, why is that important? Because when you run the, run, the race of faith, sometimes it's going to get hard. Sometimes you're going to be challenged. Am I going to choose the way of the world or am I going to choose the way of God? And it's going to be hard. You're going to be tempted. Sometimes you're going to have doubts. Sometimes you're going to feel the pain of trying to live for God. So when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, when it gets painful, you can look to these men and women in faith, these brothers and sisters in Christ who have run the race before you and you can find encouragement from them knowing that they've finished their race and you can too. So find your fans. They're all throughout the scriptures. The next thing this scripture tells us is free yourself. The second part of verse one says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. The last marathon I, I ran was the Hartford Marathon uh, years ago. It was a cold and rainy day. Um, and I remember this vividly because uh, I brought a full-sized garbage bag and I poked a hole in it and pulled it over my head so I could stay dry and hold in some body heat as I waited for the race to start and, and then began to run. And I, you know, I ran like this for the first couple of miles <laughs> just to stay warm, but eventually I got warm and, and I, took off that, I took off that huge garbage bag and I wadded into a ball and I held it. I thought, you know, maybe, it, the, maybe the rain's gonna get harder. You know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm gonna get cold again. I, I'm gonna need it. I remember hitting them about mile 20. I saw Cynthia and the kids and I got a little shot of adrenaline. It was great to see them, but there were six miles left. And somewhere in that six miles, I just got tired again. And that bag, all maybe one ounce of plastic, got too heavy. And I threw it down. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I, I finished the race, not because that offloaded, but just because I, I knew I had to finish it and, and I made it through. But, but here's the idea what, what they're telling us in chapter 12. They're telling us that we have to throw off those things that hinder us. Our ability to run the race of faith is that we have to recognize that there are things that will hinder us. There are things that will distract us from running the race of faith. You know what distracts you. Is it more important than following Jesus? Is it your bank account? Is it social media? What's distracting you? It's hindering you from following Jesus, so throw it off. But then he goes on and he says, we also need to throw off the sin that easily entangles us. Because, you know, there are distractions that hinder us. But there's also sinful behaviors that 
entangle us. They slow us down. They can trip us up. They can even make us fall out of the race of faith. Sin and its consequences are too much for us to carry. So we need to be proactive. When we even see that we're tempted by something, we just need to throw it off before it even entangles us. So we need to to free ourselves. And here's the final thing, and and this obviously is the most important thing because honestly, if you get this right, you're gonna get the other two right too. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me just read again what the author says. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And this is what he says about Jesus. He's the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And he goes on and he says, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart in your race of faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's your biggest fan. He's cheering you on. He knows what's distracting you, and he wants you to let go of it. He also knows the sin that's entangling you, and he wants you to get rid of that. And he wants you to fix your eyes on Jesus. He's the finish line. So as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, and we need to run the race of faith. We need to recognize that he has something better for us than the world has for us. So throw off the distractions, throw off the sin, and keep running for him each and every day. Now, as I bring this message to a close, obviously my encouragement for you is to run the race of faith and fix your eyes on Jesus. But if you need to start with a a prayer of repentance to say, you know, God, I've stopped running the race of faith or I've stopped fixing my eyes on you, I'm gonna give you the opportunity right now in a prayer. And if you've never told Jesus that you believe in him and you wanna run the race of faith toward him, I'm also gonna give you the words to pray that back to him right now. And so as we do that, I'm gonna invite the worship team to come on up. And I'm gonna invite you here in this room and online to close your eyes And I'm going to start us off with a prayer of repentance, and then I'll move into a prayer of profession of faith in Jesus. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you've called us to have an active living faith, to run the race of faith, following you, fixing our eyes on you. And so, Lord, right now we confess, Lord, we have taken our eyes off of you. We have not fixed our eyes on you permanently, and we need to do that. So, Lord, forgive us for being distracted. Forgive us for even embracing sin that entangles us from running the race well. Forgive us, Lord, and help us walk in that truth. And just in this moment of silence, just take a moment and tell him you're sorry and ask for his forgiveness. Now I know there are some of you who have never told Jesus you believe in him and that you want to follow him. So if that's you, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer and then let us know so that we can encourage you. So here we go. 
Just pray this silently back to God. Dear God, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he lived and died and rose again. I accept his forgiveness as payment for my sin. And today I want to run the race, fixing my eyes on him. And so, Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your salvation. We thank you for sending us Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one that the ancients could look forward to and that we can look back to and know what he has done for us and receive your promise of eternal life and power for living a living faith with you on this earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.